control. The sky set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we are also archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're podcast these days on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for those of you with fast thumbs uh, or quick fingers and want to reach us. Can't listen on a gramophone or a record player. Though. Can't hear us on your phonograph the lps just won't work (laughs) now those are now you're now you're pulling me back to my ute my misspent ute but on your computers and your personal digital assistant devices um you can listen to us anywhere in the world in fact we're broadcasting to the entire universe for the cosmic approach but i'm joined by a really cosmic guy mr chris ryan is here with me to wax eloquently about all kinds of things. And I'll tell you what I'm thinking about, Chris Ryan, something you know a lot about, and which is not a usual subject for me on, on uh, Off the Record. But, but since we're off the record, and, and it is September, my thoughts have turned to baseball. And in September, as the leaves begin to turn, I, I'm actually seeing the tops of some of our trees beginning to turn and fall, that fall nip is in the air, all of our thoughts turn to baseball. Now, it could be that we want some relief from the usual subject of democratic politics and world affairs, which usually occupy all those nooks and crannies in our brains, but baseball. And I am concerned, and I'm concerned because I believe, if my math is correct, and if my eyesight is still good enough to see, that our Boston Red Sox, our team, the champions, the great, are nine and a half games behind to reach a wild spot playoff berth. They're not even in the running for the division title. They're just desperate by nine and a half games to reach the playoffs. I mean, what happened? What what's going on? I mean, I, I I'm I'm not a good fan. I know I'm not one of the I'm I, I I'm I you know I'm I'm one of the great unwashed who only pays attention at the last minute. But but what happened? Well, um, my good friend Dave D'Onofrio from Boston.com uh, was on the show today, and he said he was thinking about me when he was watching uh, the debate in the Red Sox going back and forth. Right. And he said, you know, I'm watching this, and in both circumstances, there's a whole bunch of people who nobody knows who they are who aren't going to be around come April. <laughs> Wait a second. The Democratic debate was vastly reduced. There were there were only 10 candidates, only one night. They got to answer questions still, at great length. There were still... I'd say seven candidates on that stage who most Americans don't know who they are. Fair? Well, I don't know about most Americans who don't know who they are. Anyway. They, they may know their names, but they don't know anything about them and can't figure out why they're there. But but beyond that... Um, and so the Red Sox are kind of in the same circumstances. Oh! There was a catcher who was playing last night who I had no idea who he was. 
And I think that one of the things that prompted ownership to uh, let go of Dave Dombrowski in yeah. really awful fashion, and, to and, be honest, and just for, for those unceremoniously. Who, yeah, for, uh, the, for those who don't follow baseball, such as myself, as closely as I know I should, I know I should be mono-focused, but, but I'm not. I'm thinking of other things. Um, Dave Dombrowski is, was whom? The president it, of baseball operations, which means he is the guy who's responsible for all of the baseball decisions. And he is the individual that, in part, built the 2000 and... Uh, 18 World Series champion Boston Red Sox, and that was only that was, was only, only less than a year ago. That was less than a year ago. And he he made some moves. He he spent some money. He has the highest payroll in baseball, uh, and he built a champion. And ownership, who is let's be honest, kind of like you, uh, not all that engaged, uh, doing their own thing <laughs> out on a boat. <laughs> they uh. they showed up. Uh, they showed up this weekend and saw the Red Sox playing the Yankees. And they looked out at the pitching man like, who the heck are these guys? What are they? I'm what? paying I'm paying the most in baseball, and I don't know who that guy is who's pitching today. Uh, that would uh, I think that that may have been something that uh, that took place. And um, you know what I like about that analysis? Sure, it's just simple. It's so elegant. It's so beautiful. Thinking about. You own this baseball team. You've spent millions, gazillions, quadrillions of dollars yeah. on building up this roster. You won just like a year ago. I mean, people, this was just like this was like yesterday. We were on the top of the heap, and now I can't tell who this joker is who's pitching, who is and I don't even know the name of the guy who's catching. Who are these people, and why are we nine and a half games out? <laughs> So the hot dogs are is, still good. The beer is still cold. Fenway is still right. Fenway. It's still nice to go look at it. But good golly, Miss Molly, what's going on here? Politics is a lot like sports, where there's a group mm. of individuals that are very, very engaged and know everything about the entire team and build everybody up. And then there's the average everyday American who does and some people may dispute that there are those everyday people that exist average everyday ordinary every and they and they come in and they're like i am a baseball fan sort of and i don't know who any of these people are um i don't know what you know who pete Buttigieg is and why he's there and and you have to look at the, that's how that's how most people view sports and politics he's they don't the, exist. he's the, pete Buttigieg is the new, he's the new starting pitcher yeah. for the boston red sox and uh and most people just are not you know hyper focused on politics or sports and a lot of times you'll find that with donors or with owners of teams um they want results and they're not you know following the process the way that uh you know the people who are hyper focused do and it's good for those who are hyper focused at times kind of take a step back and think about how you know it's what the perception is of the everyday person regards well, the, their the, product. The owners often are donors, and and sometimes it's good news. Sometimes Correct. it gets them in trouble. I mean, I'm thinking of our of our other vaunted patriots, who, by the way, who, by the way, came out of the box in mid season form for the first time in I don't know how many seasons. Uh, the Patriots looked crisp in the opener. It didn't look like this was a four or five game warm up before they found their form. The Patriots, I was, I was impressed. Yeah, the Patriots have served as a great example uh, for me to allow my kids to become familiar with the legal system. We have Robert Kraft. <laughs> we have. I had. I got to explain. Um, 
Patrick Chung's arrest for drug possession and yeah. what that means yeah. and whether he's going to still be able to play and why he's able to play the innocent to <laughs> prove a guilty process. Uh-huh. That's well, very, very good. I got to explain good. bail. That's right. This is, you know, this and is now I early, get... early education about the criminal justice system. And now? Kids, <laughs> this is what you want to avoid. You never want to be arrested for the possession of drugs. You never have to... Be asking for bail. You don't need to know ever about the presumption of innocence from a personal standpoint. And now, thanks to the New England Patriots um, and Antonio Brown, who they recently signed, yeah. I get to explain uh, to Liam uh, the difference between civil and criminal rape charges. So I think that this is this is all a good educational process for the, the kids. <laughs> you would ho- I was hoping that perhaps football would serve as kind of a um, distraction from everyday life. But instead, it's a way for me to, uh, to teach them about the various aspects of the legal system. And today's lesson, because Liam is a big fan of Antonio Brown, because he was on a show, which I'm sure you caught, The Masked Singer, where you have these various celebrities who wear costumes and they go out and perform on Fox. It's back for another season. I, I, I've seen I, yes. I've seen the so ads it, for it. So Antonio I, Brown I, was one of those. Surf, surfing through the channels, I came across, across an ad for The Masked Singer. I watched about six seconds before I turned the sound off and then switched the channel. Liam, my nine-year-old, loves The Masked Singer. Uh, and they, one of the people that, on well, it that's, was, that's really interesting was Antonio me. Brown, who was the and, hippo on the show. Well, wait and, a second. Before we get there, what are you doing about Leo and his... And his unreasonable attraction to this television show where the singers appear in masks. I mean, are you using that as a teachable moment about American culture? That's gone. I, I, that's, his mother could take care of that. I have nothing to do with the masked singer. But um, So he likes Antonio Brown. And so Antonio Brown is being— How, Was he a good singer? No, he was voted off instantly. Uh-huh. But the, um, he is now being—he's facing civil charges from his trainer for sexual assault. And so he's going to continue to play. He's going to have to play on Sunday. The Patriots are keeping him. They just signed him yeah. um, for a, days for ago. For a lot of dough, right? For, for a lot of money. Yeah. He's one of the best receivers of football. Yeah. And so now you know, we, that's going to be the next lesson is um, civil versus criminal. Civil versus criminal. Right. So he hasn't, Which I think a lot of people out there probably need to learn about yeah, right. as well. So he has not been arrested for this. There, in fact, the individual did not even file a police report in regards to this. There's not even a, a criminal uh, investigation that took place. It's so, just strictly a, simil- a, a civil lawsuit's been filed against so him. So it's really interesting. And folks, for those of you who may be wondering, in a criminal proceeding, obviously um, somebody can be subjected to jail time or big fines. Um, if they're fined for a criminal charge, um, uh, there's a whole separate procedure for a victim to be compensated, but the fines generally go to the state. Um, and obviously, you know, in, with criminal charges under our Constitution, there's a presumption of innocence until uh, guilt is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil case, um, when somebody is fi- filing, files a civil case and asks for money damages or other relief, uh, there, uh, the the whole the standards are very different. You don't have to prove somebody did it beyond a reasonable doubt. You only have to prove more probably than not that the person did what you said they did, and then they're subject to a claim for damages or or other kinds of relief. And then the damages have to be proven and decided. 
um, uh, by a, a jury um, or the judge, if you know, depending by the trier of fact, who, whoever that is. So it's really interesting. Politics are kind of like kind of like sports these days. Uh, we had a football team on stage at the uh, Democratic debate last night. We're going to be talking about that when we come back uh, with Matt Robeson of a more perfect union This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the Internet. And uh, we're very happy to spend some time with Chris Ryan talking about the kinds of things that really matter. Kids, do you know who your hero is today? It's Paul Hodes on Off the Record. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for your binge listening pleasure. And I'm really pleased to welcome back to Off the Record Matt Robeson, whose blog is a moreperfectunionforum.com, a really smart blog about politics. Um, especially on the national scene, Matt has a way of digging down underneath the surface issues to look at what's really going on underneath. Matt, I'm happy to talk with you. How are you doing? Great to be back. Good. So uh, here we are on this beautiful day up here in New Hampshire. And like many Americans, I'm not sure how many. I turned on the television last night to see the latest edition of Democratic Debate uh, Take Three. Um, Last night's debate featured 10 candidates um, down in Houston, Texas, at a historically black college, uh, talking uh, with a different set of moderators than the first two debates, and obviously with only half the candidates invited uh, of the first two debates. What did what did you think? What what was your t- what what are some of your takeaways? What are some of your questions? So, I think the short answer is I don't think there's a lot we can take away from that debate. I think there's been a lot of analysis this morning that I mostly agree with that it was a pretty meaty, substantive, strong debate across the board, and that's a good thing. Definitely a relief uh, compared to the first two debates. And uh, I think that the candidates generally acquitted themselves pretty well. But look, the fact is, it's darn early for Democrats. Um, If you take the phrase beginning of the end and you flip it, last night was sort of the end of the beginning. Everything that's happened up to now was pregame warm-up. And, you know, if you kind of look at the viewership numbers, you know, we've had four nights of debates. The TV viewership has ranged from about 9 million. The early results from last night, you know, maybe it's a little over 15 million. Look, there were 30 million votes cast in the 2016 Democratic presidential primaries. There are more than 45 million registered Democrats just among the 31 states that require that kind of registration. So if you were really generous, you could say, at most, a third of potential Democratic primary voters uh, were even tuning in as of last night. Uh, I just think it's, it's, it's very early on, and you could sort of see it 
in the way that the candidates were mostly just trying to not make any big mistakes. You know, the um, uh, I I think I agree with you that the debate uh, seemed um, meatier, <laughs> meatier than thou. I guess I'd say it was it was certainly meatier than um, the earlier forums. Um, uh, on the other hand, the moderators spent, at least by my count, approximately forty minutes digging into the various minute differences among the candidates on their health care plans. Now, one of the things that I keep thinking about is that I never hear any of the Republicans even mention the word plan. Plan is like a four-letter word for Republicans. The closest, the closest uh, President Trump ever got was to say, you know, we're going to re- repeal and replace uh, that awful Obamacare. And uh, then when asked what he'd replace it with, he said, oh, we're going to have a great plan. Uh, I have the best plans. We'll have great plans. And that's about as far as they got then. And that's about as far as they've gotten now with any idea of what to do if uh, the Affordable Care Act actually goes down as a result of the uh, of the of the pending litigation in federal court. Uh, The Democrats spent with with a under ABC's tutelage 40 minutes trying to distinguish themselves and argue about the intricacies of their various plans, whether it's Medicare for all or Medicare for choice or Medicare as a public option or 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 beef up the Affordable Care Act first or whatever it was. And and Matt, you and I both know that really, in some ways, none of that makes any difference because whatever a president brings to the sausage factory uh, is going to be chopped up and uh, extruded into some other kind of casing. Uh, who knows what it, what it, what it what it would end up with uh, if we uh, end up with a Democratic president and a Democratic legislature? Um, because those unruly Democrats in the House and the Senate, if by some chance we were even to be able to get a majority in the Senate, would chop whatever the president presents to bits. Why? Yeah, so why totally spend right. why spend why spend why spend forty minutes on it? Uh, is is that was that ABC's attempt at uh, the re, redoing the food fight that we saw in some of the earlier debates? I think it was uh, possible. Possible. Um, that, that's always a good hypothesis when you're talking about media. But I do think that. Um, they're probably looking at the same polling that the rest of us are looking at, that health care is the number one issue among Democratic primary voters. It was a featured issue in the 2018 midterms for Democrats very successfully. And uh, it's broadly uh, one of the number one issues of concern to the American electorate. So I have no quibble with, with the choice. And look, you know, all of your points spot on. I do think that the, you know, the kind of eye-crossingly painful um, minutia dives, um, you know, are, are, are probably uh, not particularly elucidative for um, the American public. But look, I do think that spending 40 minutes with the take home being Democrats are really passionate about doing something about the cost of health care for you and your family. From the Democratic perspective, that's not a bad thing. Now, the thing that they have to be careful about is 
you know, look, in the 2018 midterm elections, there was some great research uh, from Gabe Horowitz at, at Third Way, a think tank in D.C., that there were 967 campaign ads run after Labor Day in the, in the swing districts that were being contested in 2018. 967 campaign ads, only two proposed Medicare for All, and both of those candidates lost. So yeah, Democrats have to be kind of careful about the messaging here. I think you could see the debate shifting from where it was even two months ago on this issue. You've seen candidates kind of back away. They're talking about Medicare for All as a public option. Kamala Harris has kind of evolved on her thinking here. So, you know, you see some awareness among Democrats. But look, overall, um, I think it's a good thing both substantively and politically to have that amount of focus uh, on, on health care affordability as an issue. Yeah, I, it, if, it, you know, I, got, I have to say, from uh, you and I have often talked um, about Democrats and messaging and um, where we, where we uh, think Democrats often miss the boat is in being able to message um, with an emotionally resonant message that somehow gets past that part of the brain that Democrats believe voters um, uh, uh, act from, i.e. the rational part of if we, if we just explain the, our policy or our plan, Democrats will get it. Um, and last night, at some point, I actually heard the word values coming from a candidate on the debate stage. And uh, I thought that uh, that was pretty interesting, that for the first time, at least since I can, I'm thinking back over the prior debates, that the V word, the values word, was actually uttered by a candidate. Wouldn't Democrats be much better served uh, in the health care uh, on the issue of health care, if they started off uh, talking about values and started talking about the general principles rather than digging into the minutiae of the various plans? Because I don't, I mean, I, you know, I, I, worked, I worked on the Affordable Care Act when I was in Congress. I, I read the whole thing. I read the whole thing more than once. I, I, I voted for it. I, I lost my Senate race because of it. And now here we are some uh, 10 years later when people are thinking about whether to keep it or replace it with a Medicare for all kind of plan after a transition. But shouldn't Democrats be talking even at this stage, even if it's early, shouldn't Democrats really be talking about values and principles and goals rather than the particulars of any one of their plans? Yes, I, I agree. And, you know, what really struck me over the last uh, uh, week or so, and I, I just wrote something about this um, on my site, is that the candidate who has come out and, and sort of done the best at this wait for it, wait for it, is Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie Sanders came out about a week ago with a proposal to get rid of Americans' medical debt. And if I can just put in a plug for this idea, um, along the lines of what you're suggesting about how to be more effective message-wise, I think that's the right way to go. I, I think where, you know, as we were just discussing, where Democrats are vulnerable is the idea 
and you saw this play out during the ACA debate, you saw this play out in the rise of the Tea Party, you personally experienced this in 2010 in that Senate race, you know, the big knock always when Democrats propose something when it comes to health care is the government's going to take over. We're going to take away your choice. We're going to take away the private insurance that you like. We know from psychological research, you know, it's, it's called loss aversion. People really value what they have, even if it's not that great. That was the biggest thing that, that bit President Obama when he said, if you like your insurance, you can keep it. And then it turned out uh, that wasn't exactly true. Um, and that was, a real, that was a real pitfall. The beauty of the pitch of saying we are going to get rid of Americans' medical debt is that it goes right to the values issue. It hits people. It's not over their heads. It hits them right in their gut. Four in ten Americans have trouble paying their medical bills. Eighty percent of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. And half of Americans in polling say that right now they're afraid that they'll go bankrupt if they have a serious illness in their family. So you can easily see, and Bernie did a pretty good job of this, how you could talk about, you know what, in America, you never go bankrupt. Your family never gets put into distress just because someone gets sick. That's something that speaks to values. It speaks to uh, a relatable condition um, that, that uh, everyone can, can feel touching their own family. Um, it speaks to your pocketbook, um, and it's very practical and implementable. Yep. Well, there, there you go. I mean, I, I you know, I, if Democrats ever uh, listened to anything you and I said, I think that they'd be speaking in very um, different terms, especially about health care. And I, I was, I was, you know, I, there were some things that I was a little curious about. I, I was um, watching with someone else, and when uh, former Secretary. Julian Castro, Julian Castro went after Biden with a vengeance. Um, uh, the response from the people I was sitting with was not positive. He was not, he did not gain points by going after Vice President Biden, who frankly seemed relatively untouched by, by that kind of criticism. And one of the other notable things uh, I thought last night was uh, the uh, the the love for President Obama, in contrast to earlier debates when there had been you know, both implicit and explicit criticism of the former president. Last night was a love fest. I mean, people were it, it felt like they were falling over themselves to say nice things about the former president. What 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 was that about? Yeah, I think that there was a little bit of a correction last night, and you know. I, I think you can explain a lot of the behavior last night and in general as we enter this phase, as things are really warming up into the, in the real primary, by kind of looking at it from each candidate's point of view and their strategy of how do they see a path for themselves going forward. And, you know, look, we could dive into that. I know we have a break coming up, but, you know, I think what it all boils down to is that each candidate that I could see on the stage last night has every incentive in the world to sort of play small ball, not go for too much. You saw it uh, bite back at uh, Julian Castro last night. Um, but they all have an incentive to just try and wait this out and make it to March. Um, I, I, I think that's, the, that's, that's sort of the dynamic right now. 
Well, we will take a break. I'm talking with Matt Robeson, whose blog is amoreperfectunionforum.com. Matt is a, a keen observer of the political scene, a good friend to us on Off the Record. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com. We will take a break to hear some important messages from the people who make it possible for us to be on the air, and we will be right back after this. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com and a podcast for all you 21st century kind of people at Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're also archived uh, both at nhtalkradio.com and you can, you can binge listen to all our shows to your heart's content. We're talking with Matt Robeson, whose blog is amoreperfectunionforum.com. Matt is an observer of the political scene, and we're talking about the Democratic debate and what's on the horizon for Democrats. So, Matt, one of the other things I noticed last night for the first time was a discussion uh, about foreign policy. That had not even entered the lexicon um, in uh, in the first debate, um, and I'm wondering whether it's a sign that uh, that uh, the that the playing field or the issue field for candidates is expanding. Traditionally, voters in a pri- in the primary don't really care that much about foreign policy. But it certainly uh, was was interesting. It, it it gave Vice President Biden, for example, an opportunity to get most of the way through an answer about what to do about the Middle East. He's a guy who spent a lot of time there and a lot of time thinking about it. Um, and his answer was yeah, it was a partial answer, uh, but it it. It, it 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 was almost coherent. Um, wh- why why the why talk about foreign policy at this stage? Well, I think you know. I think a lot of Democrats on the stage last night were sort of asking themselves that question uh, as well. I don't know if you you had the same feeling, but my impression was a lot of discomfort from the candidates on the stage. Um, you could tell that a, a limited number of them really had experience talking about foreign policy issues. Um, uh, the limited number really had had comfort um, in this area, you know. And I, I kind of got the sense that they were fe- really feeling their way out here. You did begin to see some uh, coordinated thinking and messaging around the idea of look. When you boil it all down, it's very hard for voters to parse. You know, what's the right thing to do in Syria? What's the right thing to do in Iraq? What's the right thing to do in Afghanistan? But you did see emerge this theme of, look, we can't be alienating our allies. We can't be fighting with NATO. And uh, we, what we need to be doing is trying to uh, use the power of our friendships um, to all kind of dang up. We can't take on China on tariffs alone. Um, I thought that was kind of effective, and it's probably the direction that the Democrats will go if they want to draw a contrast. But I, I sense a lot of discomfort, especially on the tariff issue. 
uh, a lot of hesitance to, to really take a, a strong position. And I, I think it goes back to your question. I don't think the candidates see a lot of upside um, in trying to make a big splash on foreign policy at this stage. Was that your take? Well, it was, and I think that the 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 candidates who took um, those the questions on foreign policy and turned them on uh, Donald Trump, if not explicitly, then implicitly, as you said, by talking about the necessity for strong alliances and the necessity for uh, global consensus when confronting um, some of the crises which we <laughs> we which we've created or which are uh, just f- features of features of the of the global scene um were most effective i mean it makes an easy contrast with this president who has alienated our allies cozied up to the worst dictators on the planet who has no coherence in his thought, speech, or conduct, who makes policy by tweet instead of by, uh, by treaty. And the candidates who painted that contrast, I think, are pointing the way to the general Democratic messaging uh, about an unstable, unfit president whose instability and unfitness have uh, not solved any of the problems of the world, but have uh, created more for us. And I, I agree with you that most of the candidates, and I'd say most of the candidates um, except Joe Biden, who has real familiarity with these issues and has has dealt with them over the course of his career very directly, uh, were not very comfortable. The question of trade and tariffs is a very complex question. Um, And it's complex because, as some of the discussion pointed out, we 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 need to partner with China on some very important issues. We need to partner with China if we're going to have any hope of really tackling uh, climate change and doing what we can to ameliorate a fast moving uh, planetary disaster. As a huge economy and a, with a huge number of people, uh, the Chinese, um, who have uh, put a lot of put put a lot of emphasis in the past on coal, uh, and have seen themselves as a developing economy which couldn't afford to take steps on energy efficiency and uh, environmental protection. We're going to need to to turn that around on a global basis if if we're going to have any hope of really tackling the problem. And at the same time, um, we are all familiar with uh, some of the predatory trade practices that China has uh, practiced. Uh, they've been happy to have our companies move there and use cheap labor to make goods to feed the consumer society. And at the same time, they've been stealing our intellectual property and dumping steel uh, to the detriment of America. And then in general, as you and I know, Matt, the, uh, there's always been a discussion about the trade deals that America makes and whether or not the trade deals are are being made at the expense of American workers or to help American workers. I thought that the point that was made about um, uh, negotiating trade deals with new part- new 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 domestic partners at the table, um, uh, small farmers, um, uh, unions, environmental interests. Uh, 
had a had had a lot of appeal as a as a as a principled approach to a new way to approach global trade by saying yes there's yes global trade um, and yes we need to do it in the ways that help american workers not hurt them and and a clear-eyed view that the multinational corporatism which has governed uh, our trade policy uh, has not been uh, necessarily to the advantage of americans so the the challenge for democrats uh, some of the challenge seems to me to 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 note that uh, there's been a lot of uh, desire in this country to stand up to China, quote unquote, whatever whatever that whatever that means. Um, but then to be able to say, and this president has just gone off his rocker uh, and off the charts by causing a trade war, which has hurt American farmers, is hurting American consumers. Um, is counterproductive to reaching agreement on the other issues we need to work with. Um, but that is, that's, that's pretty sensitive stuff uh, in, a, in, a, in a campaign uh, where voters are, I'm not going to say simplistic, but um, really don't get uh, the opportunity to think deeply about complex issues like global trade, trade imbalances, and what's good or bad in the long in the short run and the long run for American industry and American workers. Yeah, I you know, and I think one of the things that people could look for in upcoming debates and as as you start to parse the messaging of the Democrats uh, in the rest of the cycle is there's an interesting difference between the parties. Republicans have traditionally, although Trump has sort of turned some of this on its head, but they've traditionally been organized around ideology. And, you know, you, you can give yourself a test on this quickly, you know, just in your own brain, say what you think Republicans stand for. And you'll probably start saying things like uh, traditional social values, however you want to frame that, uh, strong defense, a lot of military spending, um, you know, uh, 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 low taxes. Democrats, on the other hand, are much more a coalition of constituencies. It's not so much an ideological, you know, center tentpole. Um, it's much more scattered ideologically. It's much more scattered policy-wise. You have a, a coalition of constituencies. And so you could almost see the struggle uh, on the tariff question last night of kind of in real time, some of the candidates thinking about, well, I've got to play to farmers in Iowa, um, and I have to think about the, the millennials, and I have to think about um, African Americans who um, are, are such strong Democratic primary voters. Um, and I, I think one interesting thing to watch for on this issue and on the whole range of issues going forward in the primary is Democrats kind of thinking through that calculus of positioning themselves within the primary and later for the general in terms of revving up that base and specifically each part of it because it's not nearly as monolithic as it is on the Republican side. Uh, it's true. I mean, the Democrats have traditionally cast a wide tent, and if they are to be successful in the next election at the presidential level, they're going to have to cast not only 
a wide net, but also figure out how you bring back uh, the non-voters and the voters who were Obama-Trump voters who are desperate for uh, desperate for change. Do you think, Matt, that that if you take a look at voters in uh, what we'll call, for lack of a better term, the Rust Belt, the the industrial Midwest, the traditional Democratic uh, once factory voters, now who knows who knows where they're working voters, uh, who have given up on politics, given up on given up that Democrats cared about them and saw, at least in the last presidential election, saw Democrats as uh, as catering to the elites just the way the Republicans did and saw in Donald Trump an outsider who uh, had no need to... Uh, to um, to 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 at least I, I, in their thinking had no need to uh, cozy up to anybody because he was a self-made man and had plenty of money so he couldn't be bought and um, was going to be a maverick and a renegade who channeled their anger at being forgotten and left behind. Did what did you hear, if anything, on the stage last night that spoke to the hearts? Uh, of those voters that that went beyond the rational and that was designed as kind of an emotional appeal to those voters who I think are going to make the real difference in what happens in 2020. Right. So that's a that's a tough one. Um, that's why know, I, I that's why I asked it. Yeah, that's why you left it for last. And I, I, I know we're uh, running short on time. Let me uh, you know, I may end up throwing uh, a bunch of numbers here in a in a short amount of time, but you know, I'll give you the nutshell version, which is, you know, I do think some of the healthcare discussion last night, the thematic push to, you know, no one is going to go bankrupt because you get sick, no one is going to have to worry about negotiating with their insurance company if you get. I think that kind of thing um, does resonate. I think we've just proven we've had a great model for this in the 2018 midterms. This is what Democrats ran on, and it was particularly effective in suburban, exurban uh, districts. Democrats just lost a special election in North Carolina this week. Pretty, um, pretty, clo- a, pretty clo- a pretty close loss in, in a deep red district. It's a district that Trump won by 12 points, and the Democrat lost by less than two. So, you know, I do think that those issues resonate, and I think you've put your finger on the central strategic dilemma that Democrats are facing, which is... Do you try to rev up your base, which includes all those segments, the the coalition of constituencies that we were just referring to? Do you focus on that, and there's some good evidence that that's a good idea? Or do you focus more on uh, white, non-college-educated working voters um, who who seem to be the core of the swing constituency? Um, and that's a, that's a debate that's going to continue to play out in the primary as we go forward. Well, we've been talking with Matt Robeson, whose blog is a more perfect union forum.com. Visit that blog, sign up, and uh, you will enjoy a tremendous conversation uh, with Matt about what's going on in politics in the United States. Um, Matt, thank you for joining us. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. We're going to take a short break, 
And we'll be back to wrap up after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, archived at nhtalkradio.com. Well, we had a wild and woolly chat with Chris Ryan, Mr. Sports, Mr. Sports himself, talking about, well, talking about the Red Sox and the Patriots and then talking a little bit about what nine-year-old boys find in their heroes and how it can be a teachable moment in sports like politics when their heroes don't turn out to be all they're cracked up to be. And we had a great chat with Matt Robeson from a AmorePerfectUnionForum.com about the fallout, the fall up, the fall in, the fall down, the Democratic debate last night and wither the Democrats as we trudge towards the February 1st in the Nation primary. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for more Off the Record.